Welcome to the Produce Industry Podcast, your weekly download on current events, trends, market reports, and community discussions. Join us each week from Tampa, Florida, as we cover all aspects of the produce supply chain industry. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Patrick Kelly. Welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Patrick Kelly. As always, I am honored to be here coming to you live from Tampa, Florida. Now, on today's episode, we are going to talk all things citrus. That's right. We're going to go over the entire citrus supply chain with a few gentlemen that are experts in this field. So we have Scott Luton and Greg White, who are the hosts of Supply Chain Now Radio and Podcast. We also have Michael Chavez, the Vice President of Golden Star Citrus and President of Flavor Wave LLC, which are growing, packing, shipping, and importing operations of all things citrus. Now we are going to travel with a piece of citrus from the tree all the way to a consumer's shopping cart. And you know what? This episode is very, very in-depth and gives you a lot of opportunity and subject matter expertise within the citrus and supply chain industry. So tune in as we get our guests on the line, Scott Luton, Greg White, and Michael Chavez. I want to welcome Scott Luton and Greg White from Supply Chain Now. Scott, great to have you here. Hey, thanks so much, Patrick. We are huge fans of the Produce Industry Podcast and excited about this collaborative approach here today. I appreciate it. And Greg, welcome, my man. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. I love this industry. Uh, you know, we've talked about it. I've worked in it before, so always glad to hear what's going on. Yeah, and you know, I am big fans of the Supply Chain Now podcast and your LinkedIn Live that you guys do pretty much almost every week. And it's like my radio station. I call you guys my radio hosts in my office, right? It's in my office is at my house right now. But still, it's like <laughs> when you're listening to certain things in the office that's your distraction. I remember back in the days I'd listen to, you know, things on Netflix or radio stations. But now it's like I listen to Supply Chain Now when it comes on. I get the alert. I put it on. I know I get to listen to Scott and Greg. And that's kind of what brought us together to this. Uh, this industry is all about relationships. I mean, you guys know that within the supply chain. Um, with produce, it's heavily about relationships from growers, packers, shippers, all the way to the end consumer. So thank you so much for joining today. And in this joint effort, we want to walk through the supply chain of citrus. So how does one piece of fruit go from being on a tree all the way to getting in the retail stores for the consumer to pick or in the COVID-19 world uh, for the delivery companies to pick and deliver to your front door if you're not out shopping. So we want to have a fun time. We want to bring in Michael Chavez from Golden Star Citrus. Now, Golden Star Citrus has been around for 35 years, growing, packing, and shipping California citrus, as well as getting involved in importing citrus from other countries. So I want to welcome Michael Chavez. I'm Greg, you know, I've seen some of your live uh, LinkedIn uh, podcasts and big fan, very much like Patrick said, it, you know, I'm busy in my office, but I, if you guys have something going, a podcast going, I usually have it going in the background and I'm usually pulled away. My attention's pulled there more than anywhere else. Very cool. Thanks. Awesome. Mike. Appreciate it. Scott, I mean, I didn't, there was no background. I didn't prep for that. That was just pure organic. So I'm going to send you. 
Patrick, yeah. I'm going to send you some some uh, top notch, top shelf flavor wave produce. Into supply chain now, and what they're doing, they have every aspect within the supply chain industry on their show, uh, dedicating a lot of time to working within the supply chain. And as I started growing and listening within the show, I talked a lot about produce, and that's when we started really connecting more. So I want to be really focused on Mike. How and when does this citrus start and how we go about bringing citrus into the supply chain? Because as you and I know, and you've taught me a lot over the years, there are so many dynamics to each part of the supply chain. And there's almost like these micro businesses of a supply chain network within each part of the vertical. We're friendly to the consumer's uh, table. So, I mean, weather... Uh, obviously, you know, right now is a, a great time to discuss this with this uh, pandemic we're going through, you know, labor shortages, um, you name it, you know, weather trends, um, anything, you know, that can come up basically comes up and, you know, in my number of years selling now, I think I'm in my eighth year now selling, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot. You talk to veteran guys, you know, like my dad or others that are, you know, 30, 40, 50 years in this business and, you know, you hear every story and every situation. So, it's fun to talk about, you know, it's fun to kind of geek out, you know, sometimes on the produce, uh, produce supply chain, whether it's citrus or the other items. So I think it's a good topic for us to discuss and I'm excited to, you know, share my, share my two cents, at least within the citrus world. I feel like all my life, cause my dad's been involved in selling citrus, right? Mike, it's like you grow up around it. You feel like you've just been involved in it so much. So Greg, Scott, first of all, I got to ask a question before we get into this. How far deep do you know about the citrus supply chain? Well, I can tell you, I have a technology company, and one of the things that we did was work with distributors. So uh, we know the people that buy your your produce, Michael. Those those weird guys in sweaty shirts in dark corners <laughs> of a of a warehouse. They call them produce buyers, and they kind of separate them from everybody else. So I I actually get a, a lot of the supply chain though some of these details we're going to talk about i'm pretty excited to hear mm. uh, and i'm excited as well in particular about cold chain cold chain is such a um a fast growing segment within global supply chain so i'm looking forward to, to, to diving a little deeper in that and as part of my prep uh what i did find out was that the top orange growing country in the world and hopefully hopefully i got this right is brazil uh, which I did not know. And then uh, Florida and California dominate, of course, the state's production of, of that citrus fruit here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from the pros, uh, being Michael and Patrick. And especially, Michael, uh, I'm not sure, 35 years in industry, is that, uh, is that like worth two or three years in other industries? I, I can only imagine. <laughs> you know, Dad started in 85, the year I was born. So, you know, like Patrick mentioned earlier, I, I've pushed brooms, I've cleaned toilets, I've been out in the, the uh, field suckering, uh, suckering citrus trees. I mean, you name it, you know, dad was a very firm believer in, yeah, you're going to start from, from, you know, the very beginnings and very humble beginnings of this supply chain without me knowing it to, you know, you're, you're going to groom yourself and you're going to curate your own, you know, career and knowledge. So it's been, uh, yeah, it, it's been a fun, fun growing up under, under, uh, you know, his guidance and you know, working, working my way from, you know, simple, simple beginnings to, you know, being a little more involved in 
you know, more in-depth uh, conversation of the supply chain. Too, we're like, should we do more things than just citrus? But it's so funny that that's where our roots go all the time. The same thing with my dad. My dad's 65 years old this year, and he's still selling citrus. You know, he's still selling orange juice. And I, I believe you are right, Scott, uh, with Brazil being the largest country. I know Florida's just right behind it in California. And then a lot of these countries like Brazil, Florida, uh, they procure a lot of their oranges for juice. So they're procuring this for juice, not for fresh. So you would say like California, as Michael knows very well, 90% of the product of California citrus goes for fresh fruit consumption and 10% goes to juice. In Florida, it would be the complete opposite. It would probably say 90% of fruit that is grown in Florida goes for processing needs, right? So it goes to cruise lines. It goes to processing plants for, you know, the big names out there uh, that you see in the grocery store outlets. Um, but yeah, you see a lot of people juicing their oranges in the store. There's a lot of more juice. You'd say 90% juice in Florida and 10% fresh. And then Brazil's like the, uh, the mothership of all citrus, 100%. They grow and then they export all of their juice over to the United States. Uh, not all of it, but a lot of juice over to the United States. Uh, they then, then blend with a lot of this deep bittered navel that we have. Because you, you have a bite into an orange. Uh, say November, December, a California orange, it's, it's pretty bitter. So it'd be even it out with other countries' juices as well, and it, it makes it for a fine, uh, a fine orange juice. So uh, there's a lot of things, right? So, Mike, let's, let's get started on this. I, I want to start, um, I say at the beginning, right? I mean, Mike and I were talking off the mic, and, and he goes, yeah, you know, an orange goes, grows on a tree, Pat. And I was like, you know, no doubt, Mike. I said, you know, I said, thank you for saying it so clearly to me. I said, um, but yeah, let's start. Let's start on the tree. Let's start um, in the farm This uh, where this, this uh, piece of fruit comes from. And let's travel a little bit through the supply chain. Let, let's go through time. Let's do it. It should be managed throughout the year. You know, the farming season, you know, starts in the summer months, irrigating, you know, getting water on those trees, keeping them healthy. You know, during, you know, leading up to actually walking up to harvest oranges, you know, there's a lot of sweat and blood, sweat and tears that go into, you know, farming citrus. So, you know, it's spray applications, it's making sure your irrigation is correct, you know, in order to, uh, you know, keep that tree nice and healthy and to get a bloom and to get a crop. So we'll fast forward, you know, past kind of all that. Hey, that Mike, hard work. Tree, roughly. You start hitting some crop production where, you know, you're, 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 Financially, you're sustaining yourself, you know, as long as you're taking care of your crop. And then usually these trees, I mean, we've got, I do have a grove that I'm thinking of in particular, that's probably 40 to 50 year old trees, if I'm mm. correct. Um, so really old rootstock, but you know, it's an old line Washington. So the flavor profile is just phenomenal. You know, we, we usually harvest that ranch around January, but you know, some of your newer varieties, you know, your late lanes and you know, some of your early varieties like a Fukumoto, you know, that come off early in the season, you know, you should get a good 15, 20, 25 years out of it. You know, it's just all relative to, you know, dirt, you know, ground conditions, uh, your growing region, you know, like, like we mentioned, there's just so many variables to each, you know, little microcosm of each layer of each supply chain that, you know, you can get as technical as you want, but, you know, a nice round number, I'd like to say 20 to 25 years pretty easily on, on the life of a tree. Hmm. 
And now there, I do know this, there are trees that are in the Central Valley, like Mike knows that the, the towns of Lindsay and Porterville, they've got these old trees that are over there that I believe, you know, Mike, I remember them doing a post when you were saying 200 year old trees in the Central Valley. <laughs> there, there are these trees that have these very uh, deep roots. And even the mother tree, if you go on, the, like the original tree uh, that was brought, you know, over here with a seed, um, into Riverside, California, they still have like a, I would say a derivative, but almost the um, the offspring of that seed in those trees that are still in Riverside, California. So you have trees that are here that are living that are probably, they could be up to, you know, hundreds of year old um, through their seeds, right? Um, but they're here in the Central Valley. But I would agree with Mike, and you're probably replanting or you're pulling out after so many years um, to harvest that soil and replenish that soil. Am I right, Mike? That uh, ranches that are 50, 60 year old trees, you know, and if their soil is right and their farming practices are right, you know, they're able to still keep their production high enough that it still pencils out economically. I throw that number of 25 years out there because that's kind of the life cycle of the prime of that tree. You know, for you, if you plant a tree today, you know, in five years, you're going to have a decent crop and you're going to get about a good 20 years of crop production, you know, where you're going to get good tonnage per acre. And as a business, it's going to be, you know, economically feasible, you know, and as you start approaching 30, 40, 50 year old trees, you know, just like us, you know, we're, we're not as vigorous as we were when we were 20 years old, you know, when we're 60. So, you know, they just don't get the same output. You don't get the same crop yields. So, you know, at that time, you know, you, it's on the grower to figure out, okay, when does it make economic sense to push these old trees out, put young trees in and start this cycle all over again? Wow, that is fascinating stuff. First of all, <laughs> you named a couple of varieties and I had not thought about the fact that hmm. there are varieties of oranges, right? And the other thing is the supply chain really starts even before the orange grows on the tree because you've got to think about things like mature maturation lifetime, right? Or maturation time until it produces something worth buying. So that's fascinating. And then, of course, the life cycle you just described is, is pretty impressive. I have to tell you, I, I, I have, sorry to break this up, Patrick, but I, I have to tell you that there is nothing like driving through the Central Valley on a hot day when you get in where the groves are and you can feel the temperature drop as you drive through that area <laughs> because those citrus trees hold in a ton of moisture and cool air. But I've got an old 99 Jeep with just the, the Bimini top and you know I'll take the kids out on a ride and as soon as we get out of the city limits, and you start hitting, you know, if it's six, six, seven, eight at night, yeah. you really feel the drop, you know, where the kids are kind of shivering. And I got to make sure I throw a sweater in the, in the Jeep for both of them because you feel that drop of, you know, five to eight degrees pretty quickly. And you're right. It, it, it is a very unique feeling and it's a very unique experience once you realize, you know, you get away from the metro areas and you start getting out in, in the Orange Grove territory and, you know, you just feel that nice cooling kind of not breeze, but you just feel that temperature drop. Yeah. But it's a very unique experience. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I love it. And I'm going to go opposite. I like it when it's winter time going into the groves. You get that first crisp feeling because the ground will be very cold. It'll have a little bit of that uh, dew on it, right? Mike knows it. 
and it's like you walk in and you can just smell the bloom and you got to wear a jacket because it drops even more than just the five degrees in the summer it's like it's almost freezing in the in the groves so I, I definitely get that love for the uh, the blooms and the coldness when it comes to citrus. I feel like it brings me back to um, really like I was a kid, like, you know, you know, my dad bringing home orange juice from work type, you know, I'm like, Oh, great. Here we go. I'm smelling that, that, that citrus blend. You know what I mean? So okay. citrus grower and, you know, Mike, has planted uh, mandarins and brought mandarins into the, the mix in the last couple of years as, as well as caracaras. And it is interesting because I remember Michael talking about that for two years. I think it was Mike. And you were like, yep, I, I started Caracaras. Yep. I started Caracaras. And I'm sitting around like, Mike, we haven't sold a Caracara in years. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden that year came and Michael was packing Caracaras. And I remember it was a huge year because that was all that crop of Caracaras finally came out. He signed new growers and you're right. You brought up a good point. So it, it starts before that, you know, go into the nursery if you're planting new, you know, trees on your, on your grove or if it's just the, the normal maintenance of procuring the tree for next year. Right. Mm. Hey, Mike, I've got one other question for you. Since, you know, as we're talking really upstream in citrus supply chain. Uh, and so whenever I hear you mentioned irrigation earlier today, uh, and when I hear water and California, I always think about the just the, the, the supply and demand. Can you can True. you speak to a minute? Uh, uh, speak for a second as to how you know how difficult it is p to source water and and the overall quantities you need and, and and you know some elements of of your approach there. Issues you know here in California for us farmers, you know outside of citrus, just just anyone in general. If you have any kind of you know, any kind of tree or crop in the ground, you know, water is, water is very precious. You know, it's a very severe and uh, it kept me up a lot of nights, you know, it, it kept us up, you know, we had to be agile. We had to be, we had to get creative and you know, we had to spend money on buying water. So, you know, I think back to, you know, we, we were technically out of that drought, you know, but I think it's something kind of like, you know, people that grew up during the great depression, you always have that fear. It's going to stay with you. And it stays with me all the time where, you know, we have a good water year. Okay, that's great. Water was great. You got a lot of rain and snowpack, but those drought years by water, very much a smaller farming operation in comparison to some of the big commercial farmers. And it got really expensive. You know, it really, really expensive. If you take a grower, you know, that's smaller than us, let's say you've got a grower with, you know, 10 acres and that's their primary income. It did put growers to a point where they couldn't afford to buy water maybe their wells were drying up, they couldn't afford to, to drill a new well, you know, all these costs that become, you know, an issue and prevent you from, you know, watering your trees enough. If you've got enough water to get you through, you know, two thirds of the irrigation season, that's all you've got. And you're, you're basically just hoping and praying that we get early rains or a nice temperate climate that doesn't stress our trees out. You know, you're hoping you know, if you've only got that much water to work with, you can stretch it out and still be profitable with your crop and your yields. So water is a very, very big issue for any farmer. And it's a big discussion. And, you know, I always go back to, I think it was Mark Twain's, uh, Mark Twain's quote of, uh, you know, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. Um, that's, there's, there's not a truer statement out there as a California farmer. <laughs> so you know, that's, the truth. that's a little bit of commentary about that. I, I think though, too, Mike, as you, you talk about some of the different varieties and, and, and moving through the supply chain, you know, what's it like 
as you talk about water now, I mean, what about the labor? I mean, I know labor has a big part of this. Um, I know how people in the labor, I would say industry, there's always, always this, I say the arguments, right? From what to pick throughout what season, right? So as you're looking at the citrus, you know, how does the labor play a part of this? And even now it's going to start getting into the picking and the hauling uh, to the shed. Uh, absolutely. Water and labor are very comparable as a commodity because they are finite and there's only so much of it to go around. And especially with us with citrus, you know, we'll just focus in on, you know, navels and we'll kind of go back to our analogy of, you know, we're in a golden star, our ranch, star ranch. We're going to get ready to harvest navels. Um, all of our citrus is hand-picked. You know, everyone in this industry, whether it's, you know, mandarins, uh, grapefruit, caracaras, oranges, lemons, all this fruit is picked by hand. So there is someone, you know, if you went and bought a lemon today at the supermarket, someone picked that by hand. So our labor situation is very finite and you have other competing items throughout the year. So like right now I'm in my summer crop, there's stone fruit going and there's grapes going and I'm still harvesting citrus. I am 100% competing, you know, based on a dollar rate with, you know, the pickers choosing citrus over choosing, you know, and picking grapes. So it's, it's a whole economy there as well, because it is that finite supply, like we mentioned. So it's just supply demand at that point. If the grape um, growers are paying more and that person can make, you know, $200 a day picking grapes and they can only make $100 a day picking citrus, where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go make their $200 per day in the grapes. So in turn, us as citrus growers have to decide, okay, we're going to have to pay our pickers more in order to keep our labor coming back. So it, it, it's just an exact correlation of supply and demand when it comes to determining, you know, the rates that we pay to our pickers. And I mean, th there's no way around it. There has yet to be technology to come out that automates citrus picking. So, I mean, this is a, this is definitely a problem. Um, we have gotten creative as an industry by bringing in, you know, the H2A worker program. So we're bringing, you know, picking crews from Mexico on, you know, uh, visas to come and work and they work under the H2A program. And, you know, that, that, that I think is definitely an option, but I don't think it's, you know, big enough yet to be, you know, a solution to the problem quite yet. So, um, you know, labor is, is a big, another hot topic for any, any grower, packer, or shipper. Um, and you know, you Mike, know, it's, it's, it's crazy because I'm over here in Tampa now and all these blueberry growers all have machines to pick the blueberries. So when I tell them that citrus is picked by hand, they look at me now like I'm crazy. They're like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, we still have laborers that go out with a 40-pound sack that climbs a ladder up and down, up and down, up and down as, you know, as fast and um, as efficient as they can. But, um, yeah, we don't use machines. I mean, yeah, there's machines that maybe hedge and trim, uh, but nothing to go out there and pick. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's your typical day. If we were out there, you know, in the field, we're getting ready to harvest our, you know, break into our harvest. You're going to have crews, you know, depending. It could be 25 people. It could be 100 people, you know, depending how much harvest we want to get done for that day. So, I mean, each individual person is going out there. They're being paid usually on a per bin rate. So the faster and the more that they can pick and get into a bin, 
throughout the day, the more money they're going to make that day. So you have to keep in mind, you know, the day for a picker is they've got, you know, their clippers in one hand because they have to clip the uh, piece of fruit from the tree. They don't just yank it off. So they've got a clip. So this is this is definitely a skilled labor. And in most cases, they usually have ladders. So they've got a ladder on one shoulder that probably weighs 50 to 60 pounds at least. I'm not even sure what a ladder weighs. But, um, you know, they're shimming up and down, you know, 8, 10 foot, you know, with a sack of oranges that they're, they're throwing oranges in. And, you know, that sack gets up to 60, 80 pounds. So, I mean, it's a very, very labor intensive and a very difficult job to do. And it's just exhausting. So, I mean, you can imagine, you know, going out for a day and picking a picking a few bins of oranges. I can probably only pick, you know, maybe a couple bins in a day versus an experienced picker's picking eight to 12 bins, you know, fairly easily. Wow. Is it something that could be done by machine, Michael, or is it too intricate? because of where the, the fruit is on the tree or what's the, what is the possibility there? You know, like anything else, technology, they have taken stabs at automating harvesting. Um, the way the citrus tree is, you know, naturally shaped, it's a very bushy tree and you've got a lot of fruit on the inside that, you know, if you had, let's just say a robotic arm picking individually with some kind of, you know, optical, uh, optical technology that's telling you know the machine what to pick there's a lot of inside fruit that a machine probably cannot get into so like to answer that question is I there's no technology yet there are ways to like do trellis systems on certain varieties of citrus where they trellis like the uh, branches and the tree into a big V okay. in order to make the picking easier but that's not being done for full automation yet that's just being done to reduce the liability of labor, you know, they might dwarf trees. I know apple growers have dwarfed their trees down to avoid the use of ladders because the insurance and the liability, you know, people getting hurt. Insurance premiums are, you know, really high. So th th there are ways for, for, you know, growers to try and hedge some of that out, but it's, it's, there's no clear solution yet. There's no automation yet in the citrus world that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's amazing too, that, and I, I picked oranges when I lived in Florida. Um, we lived it for a stint of about uh, seven years. My dad actually worked for a processor out here and he had us go pick juice oranges. And I, I was joking with Mike on the phone earlier and I go, Mike, I remember when I was picking, you know, I'd be the guy where they'd be like, oh yeah, that guy, we just, we just gave him $5 an hour. We know he's going to pick like half a bin and you know, he was okay with making $5 an hour. I mean, it was, it was hard. And, you know, I've never seen some of the spiders and things that I've seen in citrus trees. And, and yeah, Mike's laughing, but when you got the, when you got like a banana spider staring down, like it's the it's it could be worse than staring down the barrel of a 45 guys. I mean, you're looking at this thing, like Harry Potter's spider just showed up in the citrus grove and you're like, should I run or should I shoot this thing with the shotgun? Oh, wait, I'm working right now. Let me pick this orange and keep filling this bit as fast as I can. So, you know, it's a, I agree. It's a crazy, crazy uh, labor intensive job. And I think that there have been companies out there. There's drone companies. But again, I mean, I, I just don't think they're as fast, effective and efficient enough yet to do what, you know, needs to be done for the grove. And if you've looked at a citrus tree, I mean, some people canopy their groves, 
I mean, some people trim them straight up. I mean, there's so many ways and techniques. So every tree or every crop or grove technically could be different. Wow. Oh, 100%, 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's a tough problem. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, Scott and I talk about this a lot on the show. There are some things that are exceedingly difficult, maybe even impossible to automate. And I could see oranges being one of those. You know, I lived in uh, Phoenix, actually, east of Phoenix, Mesa, where there are a ton of orange groves as well. And uh, you can see when those trees are full, they are full. And I mean, they're full inside to out. So... I could see where that would be really, really common. When we, we fight as a farmer to, to try to grow the highest number of pieces on our trees in right. order to get, you know, more production out of them, which essentially, you know, the, the more production a crop, the more dollars you're going to spend back to your farm. So we work really hard to keep our growths healthy, to take care of them. You know, you nurture them along like you're nurturing your own children along. You know, you want to keep them he- happy, healthy, so to speak. And, you know, you, you want to see the fruits of your labor when it comes harvest time. So, I mean, that is a big part of it is if you automated and had this robotic arm system, we'll just pretend that that's, you know, what we're going after, you know, and you're a grower and this machine combs through your 10 acres and you walk the field after the machine's gone through and you see 20, 30 oranges on the inside sitting there unpicked, the grower will not be happy. Those are dollars that they're leaving behind. So... You know, it's a very complex problem that we have with citrus. Um, I hate to use the word problem, but I mean, that is going to be a problem with the grower if, if that's where we went as an industry where we just automated everything, but we're going to leave 30% of the crop on the tree. Yeah, I can't see that being practical, right? No, exactly. You're going to have, no grower is going to be happy with that. I mean, if, if they walk their field and I can tell you from personal experience and they see one or two, you know, on, on five or 10 acres spread, you're going to get an earful. I've gotten earfuls personally from the grower of you guys left fruit behind. You didn't do your job. You know, you, you didn't, you left money on the tree. You know, you get that whole speech and I mean, they're absolutely right. So, I mean, automating is a very complex problem for us to try and figure out as an industry. So it, it's going to, it's going to take a while. I don't see that answer coming up anytime soon to be perfectly honest. You know, Scott, Greg, this can be a perfect segue into looking at how that affects the supply chain. Because as you know, when you're in the trucking world, pretty much things go by the pound, right? Everything, you know, how much weight's going on the truck, how it's being, you know, converted. And that's what's so interesting because if a citrus grower has trees that are just, you know, I call them with low uh, bearing fruit and it's very patchy, right? Think about a citrus tree being very full and then think about a citrus tree being very patchy and, and not enough fruit. It affects the entire supply chain because, you know, someone like Michael will know, oh, I'm only going to get, you know, four bins per tree or, you know, maybe uh, one bin per tree. And then if that truck doesn't fill up as they're loading right onto the field, all that now goes into the cost of that load. So if it's going from, you know, grower A all the way up to, you know, a big box retailer, that price might be the same going into the retailer. uh, But now Michael and the grower are maybe losing money or taking a hit on it because that first hit actually started at the beginning of the supply chain, which would be not enough fruit per bin. And normally you can fit about 700 to 800 pounds of fruit in these bins. So it's pretty significant if each bin is filled up at 800 pounds or so, 
and you know you got 50 of these big bins going to the packing house imagine if you only had 30 now like i said your your rate of return is now tremendously increased right at the beginning of the supply chain yeah yeah, yeah your costs are just spread over a smaller number which you know drives the cost up for the whole supply chain it's going to cost you more to pick you know if the trees are light you know you go from paying $25 to the to the uh, picker per bin to $35 because you know they're only able to harvest a bin every 15 trees versus you know going to a better pick and they're harvesting a bin every three trees it's a big big trade-off I agree Mike it is a huge trade-off so before we get into the transportation part of the supply chain of citrus let's take a quick break and hear from our partners are you ready to enhance your skills? Every day we are tasked to make fast, effective decisions to keep up with the fast-paced produce industry. At AgTools, we take the pressure off of gathering data to help make your day easier and more enjoyable. Connecting the supply chain with AgTools is unique, practical, and easy. AgTools can be used from multiple angles of the produce industry, from farmers all the way to logistics companies. We call that 360-degree decision-making day after day. Visit www.ag.tools.com to gain more reliable and relevant data to see more, achieve more. And now, back to our show. Welcome to Terra Exports, a fast-paced, entrepreneurial, and innovative, multinational fresh produce company with eight divisions worldwide that handle fruits and vegetables across 65 countries. Did you know that Terra Exports was featured three times in Inc. 5000's fastest-growing companies? Terra Exports starts at the ground, literally, with the growth of the product at the farm all the way through distribution channels up into the end user. They take pride in their products, arriving fresh and damage-free, and they're there every step of the way, working alongside suppliers and customers who share in their common goal. Visit Terra Exports at www.terraexports.com, as well as following them on social media on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. If you get on their website, you can also check their availability calendars and all of the produce that they have in store. When you join Terra Exports, you become a member of their global team of thinkers, innovators, dreamers, and doers who are bringing a fresh approach to the produce and supply chain industry. So reach out to Terra Exports today at terraexports.com. Welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast, everyone. Hey, it's always great to hear from some of our partners at the Produce Industry Podcast. But let's get back to talking about all things citrus with Scott Luton and Greg White from Supply Chain Now and Michael Chavez from Golden Star Citrus and Flavor Wave LLC. But as we move through the supply chain, um, this is where the trucking starts. We start with now with picking and hauling, right? We've done the picking. Now it's about hauling these. So we get into the first part of these you know, pieces of fruit traveling. So now you've got citrus on its first truck. So Michael, walk us through a little bit of that. Walk us through you know, how that process works um, in the supply chain, getting to the packing house and, get, and getting that process started uh, because that's a very important part. And that, again, as I say, it's one of the first part of the trucking supply chain and the first part of that traceability and tracking of that piece of fruit after the growth. Yeah, absolutely. The fruit comes off the tree into a sack uh, by the picker. The picker empties the sack into the bin. And when you fill these bins up, usually it's 48 or 50 bins 
to make a complete truckload. At that point, you know, you've got a big Harlow forklift out in the field, you know, and they, they scoop these bins up out of the field with a big forklift, load them onto the truck. And then the logistics part has changed in the past couple of years. There's been an added cost and an added requirement here in the Central Valley with tarping. So tarping is exactly what it sounds like. Once that truck, those 48 or 50 bins are loaded onto this big flatbed truck, we have to put a big tarp over these bins. And that was um, sparked by, you know, the ACP, uh, Asian citrus psyllid. Uh, we're trying to reduce the amount of populations or hopefully, you know, eradicate this bug from the Central Valley because that bug can give the uh, trees a disease called citrus greening. So this tarping, of course, like anything else, it's another service, so it's an additional cost that's, you know, padded into the cost to the consumer you know, at the very end, but um, the fruit's loaded onto the truck, it's tarped, tied down, you know, with steel cables, and then from there, the driver exits the, uh, the uh, orange grove and goes, you know, to the designated packing house. You know, for this analogy, they're gonna head over to Wood Lake, show up at my packing house in my unloading area or my receiving area, and that driver is gonna give us the information of the grower name or the block ID, just something to designate, you know, that's really where the first traceability kind of starts in our supply chain um, involving the packing house in the field is identifying that block, where the fruit came from and who the fruit essentially belonged to before it arrived at the packing house. Mm. So, hey, Mike, uh, this is Scott. Um, you mentioned the citrus greening and, and my homework for this conversation I didn't realize just basically, uh, and not to make light, this has been like a citrus pandemic uh, in and of itself, deeply impacting the industry. But the good news is, based on, on what I've been reading, uh, Mike, is that in mid-July, it looks like there was some news that came out of the University of California at Riverside, where it looks like they've made some big steps towards being able to treat this citrus greening, uh, which I think is also called uh, HLB. I'm not going to try to pronounce the name behind HLB, but it seems like there's been some steps to um, uh, tamp down this this huge issue for the industry. Is that is that what you're seeing too? Absolutely, and and UC Riverside has done a fantastic job of researching. You know, each each packing house, we do pay you know our, our operating uh, fees, and you know there there are assessments that do go into a fund in order to to fund that research. But they've come leaps and bounds in a very short period of time. And, you know, if you're going to talk about citrus greening and HLB and ACP, you know, all these acronyms start getting tossed around. Um, Florida is definitely a big citrus producer that was hit tragically. And I mean, devastatingly. So with citrus greening, so a lot of the Florida acreage, you know, has really been folding in on itself with volume, which is, which is terrible you know, these growers that have this disease in their field and it spread like wildfire, they're no longer able to, to operate their citrus business, mm. you know, on the growing side. So bigger issue really, in Florida than California. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. So Florida definitely has seen a lot more devastation from this uh, citrus greening with the ACP and the HLB. Um, the tarping was put into place, if I'm correct, I think two years ago in order to slow the spread you know, we have different growing districts here in California. So my facilities, we've got two packing houses in the Central Valley. We're considered district one. 
Um, if you drive down, you know, the freeway and cross the mountains to the south of us, you get into, you know, Fillmore, Piru, Ventura County area, Riverside, you know, a lot of that's District 2. And then further south, you know, to the desert, once you start hitting Hemet and Imperial Valley, that's considered District 3. So there's designated growing districts as well. And for example, if you've got a grower in District 2 who has oranges and our packing houses are in District 1, there's a lot of protocol because you're crossing districts. If they've got more ACP down there or if they've got ACP present down there, what we do not want happening is that fruit being transported up to District 1 to the packing house. And these bugs and this HLB are going to get on our groves up here in District 1 and start spreading up here. So the efforts that we've done with the tarping, with all the protocol, you know, it's been to mitigate the problem and then the research and then the, uh, everything that UC Riverside and others that have been doing are to hopefully eradicate this issue and essentially come up with a vaccine, so to speak, for this problem before it, you know, decimates our acreage the way, you know, Florida has seen some devastation to their, to their uh, citrus industry. What HLB means? It's Hong Long Bing. Very simple, Scott. So, you know, you know uh, but that's what the HLB is. It, it, it's, uh, it's very interesting because I did a lot of lobbying for this in California too. And I think Michael remembers uh, back when I was uh, lobbying was California Citrus Mutual, but there were so many quarantine zones that were in California that people were thinking, oh, well, we don't have the bug here and it's not where we are. And this bug spreads so fast that it, it can really, really wipe out our industry like it has done to Florida. And if you look at some of the reports, I can't tell you the exact percentages, but compared to 10 years ago, buying fruit out of Florida to now, it, it's like, you know, you're few and far between, you know, unless you've got the greatest relationship in the world, I mean, the, these guys are sold out because their crops have diminished that much. The companies have probably downsized. They've been uh, condensing. They've been selling out. So, and a lot of these groves, the same thing. There's a lot of processors here, uh, big processors here that process juice for some of the big names. Um, but like you said, there's other countries that are producing. And like I said, that are bringing in um, products from other countries to make it work. But it could, it could devastate our entire industry in California. And we still heavily, heavily are scared that that could happen. Like Michael's scared about water. This is another thing that the citrus industry is worried about and probably keeps us up at night about. I, I promise not to be a downer here. Uh, but the, you know, these big issues, I think, from a supply chain standpoint, um, these big issues, the, the threats, it's, it's always fascinating from industry to industry. So uh, Mike and Patrick, I appreciate you sharing both on both the water and, and sourcing water uh, and uh, Hong Long Bing, HLB. Thank you, Patrick. We got it. Yeah, you got to have the right, the right verbiage in it. And I do want to, I do want to point out, um, Michael is at the packing house. I hear the forklift and the trucks backing up in the background. So that's even better uh, because, you know, we, we're in the, like the, the heart of this, right? Michael's like, you were going to say boots on the ground. I mean, uh, Michael's company is really boots on the ground, helping supply a lot of this citrus, you know, to, I'd say the globe, because, you know, Michael, he's an importer, exporter as well. But as you're looking at this, Mike, as we, as we keep growing uh, through the supply chain, uh, keep, keep walking us through this. 
as now this citrus is on the road, it's it's tarped up probably in a hundred degree weather now, right? I mean, uh, this this poor piece of fruit is is getting uh, he's in his sweat room if you think about it. And and what's crazy is uh, Scott Greg, if it depending on what type of the year it is, whether it's October or whether it's you know May, um, this fruit is obviously outside at all times. But there's there's a lot of different processes from when it gets to the packing house, depending on what type of year, you know, what type of year it is, but what time of the year it is. And uh, Michael, talk a little bit about that. All right. So uh, trucks arrived at the packing house. We identify it, you know, it's grower XYZ block 16, you know, my receivers get their forklifts, they unload the trucks. So, you know, you have machinery involved there. They get this fruit and depending on the time of the year, we'll just say for, for, you know, the sake of an analogy here, we'll say this is November. Usually those oranges are going to come in with a lot of green on them. They're not your hardy orange that you picture in your mind, you know, and at our level on the boots on the ground level, you know, this fruit's going to come in with maybe a little orange and probably a higher percentage of green coloration on the exterior. So we'll take this load, we'll put it in a sweat room like Patrick mentioned, and that room is really easy to describe. It's just a big room. We control the atmosphere in these rooms. So we set it to the right temperature. We do uh, humidity treatment to get the right humidity because like citrus, it's kind of comparable to our human skin. It's got pores. And we want to get the right temperature and humidity mix to where those pores are open when the fruit is green. So we can do an application of ethylene, which is a natural gas that we treat the, uh, the oranges with. It doesn't change the, the eating profile. But what it does is we shoot that into these sweat rooms and we control the environment and it turns the orange orange. So the pigmentation on the skin, we actually do treat that because if you get an orange that's green, you're probably not going to want to eat it. So we have to essentially naturally turn the pigmentation to an orange through this process. So that's a, uh, that's a factor that you know, does add a cost. It's an extra service. And it is part of our supply chain that we have to factor into our cost to our end customers. So, you know, the ethylene, you know, most consumers probably have no clue that, you know, oranges are not naturally orange, you know, 24-7, 365. We have to do, do uh, extra services and treatments in order to get them orange. Yeah. How much does that accelerate it? I mean, it, it, they are eventually always orange. Right. So is this room just an accelerant or? Yeah. So we just want to accelerate the pigmentation of color. We yeah. just want to bring that nice bright orange out. And that's what the ethylene and the controlled atmosphere of the sweat room do. So it's a lot like bananas. They ship bananas green you know, right. when they make it stateside to us. Um, you know, a lot of retailers do this at their distribution center levels. They've got these big fancy rooms. They control the temperature and they turn the, uh, the uh, bananas from, you know, green to a nice, nice yellow that they're comfortable with in order to account for shelf life and, you know, moving the product to the customers. So very similar in that process of what they do with bananas. But um, like I said, it really doesn't affect the, the interior maturity, the, the eating quality of the fruit. It's just sheer cosmetic treatment, basically. Yeah, it's the, it's the home equivalent of a brown paper bag to ripen your tomatoes or whatever, right? I mean, it's, it exactly accelerates it um so yeah that, that's that's interesting H how much exactly. time does that take out of 
of ripening or, or of coloration. I know it's not really ripening, it's just coloration. But how, how long would it be without the room to get to orange, oranges? If we let everything color naturally, that's a, that, there's no straight answer to that, to be yeah. honest. So this is where it's like really fun to talk about supply chain because there's no straight answer. Um, let's just take uh, Washington Naval. That's a very, very common, very well-known variety of, orange, of uh, Naval Orange. Um, those are usually naturally colored and fully mature by around mid-December. So mind you, let's, let's take that into account. Let's just say December 15th is the date. You have a piece of fruit, it's fully colored, it tastes like the way it should taste, it's at full maturity. We speed that process up with different rootstocks and varieties. So I'll start picking in mid-October. That's two months, wow. you know, before natural maturity. So, I mean, we, we pick earlier varieties. Usually Fukumoto's is like one of my earlier varieties that I do a lot of volume with. And we stretch the season out essentially two months earlier than, you know, the natural maturity would come on if we just let nature take its course and the fruit mature on the tree the way, you know, nature intended. Wow. That, I mean, that's a big, that's a big time shift. That's really impressive. I guess yeah. we really have to do that because you know, I don't know, you guys may not even be old enough. You used to not have certain fruits or vegetables certain times of year. Now we, we what? accelerate them. I know, right? <laughs> what? Stop it. What? And now we either accelerate them or get them from the other side of the equator or whatever so that we have essentially every, every piece of produce year round, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's a great, that's a great observation. Um, you know, and even, you know, we talked about research there at UC Riverside with, you know, ACP, HLB, you know, we're fighting that disease, but at the same time, they do a lot of rootstock studies and there is a variety, which the Fukumoto was kind of set the bar. That was the earliest variety of orange that we could pick. And depending on climate and weather and all these good factors, you know, we might start mid-October, might be later October. Um, but we know we're starting around, you know, October 15th and October 30th. They've developed other rootstocks now that are going to, they're going to come off even earlier. I think there's an M7 navel that uh, rootstock that they have that essentially could come off late September, early October here in California. So our calendar of, you know, our typical citrus season is always evolving. It's always evolving based on weather factors, rootstocks, you know, you name it. So it's, it's, it's kind of fun to watch, you know, in my career and my, probably my lifetime to where, you know, we, we may have navel oranges from, you know, the calendar to me right now in my career is, you know, late October through May or June, my kids, the next generation, their citrus calendar for navels, California navels may be September 1 through, you know, August or something crazy. Wow. And I mean, and all of that impacts the supply chain, doesn't it? So, you know, that, oh. that changes how and what type of, of product winds up in the marketplace. Well, it just translates in so many ways. That could be, you know, you could relay it to the political side of, you know, obviously, you know, we have trade agreements and uh, all these uh, political factors that come into play. If all of a sudden we don't need another country to supply us, you know, that is a bargaining tool that's no longer, you know, <laughs> relevant to that country when they're talking to the U.S. So, I mean, you can, you can take this and extrapolate this out 
a lot further. And this is just citrus. I mean, I'm sure this is probably relatable in other items. So it's sure. just interesting. You can really geek out on it. All right. Well, I'll, uh, since you're in the warehouse, I'll let you get back to the trucks and everything. Um, that, <laughs> so, that was- so we're there. We've treated the product. You know, we brought the natural color on. Consumers buy with their eyes. So we want to give them a nice orange, vibrant piece of fruit. Um, from there, you know, we set our run schedules. So at a packing house, you know, our job here is to wash, wax, size, and grade the fruit. So that's really where, you know, I come into play with my staff here in the packing house. We've got machinery that we wash, wax, you know, wax the fruit, make it look nice and, you know, put a nice coat of luster on there, make it nice and shiny. So it's very appealing when you see it on the uh, storefront. And then we size them, you know, like anything else, not all this fruit grows in one size. So we have to size them by, you know, small, medium, medium, large, large, you know, there's different size breakdowns that we um, use optical technology for. And then a lot of my labor to separate, you know, a fancy or US number one from a US number two, which is a choice grade versus a juice grade, we still heavily rely on a lot of manual labor for that. So you've got, you know, a line that you dump these oranges onto, they go through a wash and a wax, and then they go through, you know, stations where there's people actually looking at this fruit and separating it by grade, US number one, US number two, um, depending on the time of the year, export grade, and then our juice grade. So all that takes place under our roof. Um, The fruit flows through our line, and then the very last step of this is this fruit is kind of singulated, like little, little, I don't know, it'd be easier to show you, but um, think of it like little highways, there's little lanes, and this fruit rolls onto my sizer and it goes through, um, you know, long rows of citrus and it goes under a camera box and the camera box takes pictures as the fruit flows through. So this fruit's moving pretty quickly through a box that takes about 10 to 20 pictures per second. And it designates that individual piece of fruit to a 72 count or a 56 count or an 88 count. So all this happens really, really quickly. And that's what's kind of cool about the technology side is this all happens so fast. And these machines are extremely accurate. Fruit will keep flowing through my line and be sized and graded. So it's been washed, waxed, sized, graded, and it either goes into a carton or a bin. And then from there, we designate where, you know, depending on orders and demand, where that fruit's gonna flow into a box or into a bin. And the bins usually go to my bag line where we put oranges into bags. Mm. Hey, quick question about packaging these cartons and bins, Mike. Do they come back to you, you know, back through? So multi-touch, multi-use packaging, is that what y'all utilize? You know what, for cartons, um, there's different, there's different uh, packaging out there. Um, the standard for us is really a cardboard carton. Uh, so once oranges are packed into that unit and stacked onto a pallet and sent out to, you know, the uh, customer, we don't ever see that cardboard again. So, you know, that cardboard goes to, you know, the box works as a transport to the customer. And then that store level, they either dump the fruit out or cut the top of the box off or do whatever they need to do. And then that just goes into the trash. So we don't ever see the cardboard again. We do pack RPCs. So I don't know if you've been into Walmart or Kroger and seen those, but it's a plastic reusable unit. Mm-hmm. And those, yeah, those are, are reused. So 
we get our RPCs from a, uh, a third party company and they, uh, they rewash those and we re reuse those. And there's a whole life cycle to those plastic containers. And then as far as our bins go, if we're catching fruit into bins, those stay in house with us here at the packing house. You know, we empty the bins out, we put them back in, you know, the general bin population, and then they're used, you know, over and over again. Excellent. Thank you. And one other quick question. Uh, as you ship the oranges out now that they've been packed in the cartons, is that where the cold chain begins? Is there a certain, a certain temperature that the oranges need to be maintained as they, they head to whatever, whatever, wherever their final destination is? Yeah, absolutely. So that's where the cold chain starts. You're absolutely right in that assessment. You know, whether it's in a box or if it gets, you know, the product is packaged into bags, which also go into a box, you know, from there, that product is, you know, the pallets are strapped with plastic straps so they, they don't tip over in transit. And we put the fruit into our cooler. And we uh, usually, uh, depending on the time of the year, you know, the fruit temperature can be, you know, up to 70, 80 degrees in the summer. And in the winter, you know, the temperature might be 50 degrees. But we always want to, we always recommend, you know, on our paperwork with the drivers, you know, set your temperature between 38 and 42 degrees. That's an optimal temperature for citrus. And, you know, we want to keep that cold chain. So if uh, we've got a pallet of cartons that just came off our production line, once it goes into the cooler and it hits that temp of 38 or 40 degrees or 42 degrees, you know, that we want to get it to, we don't want that cold chain broken until that fruit is reaching uh, the store level or the restaurant or food service, you know, final end customer. So it's very important because that, that preserves the quality, you know, pr preserves the integrity of the fruit. And, you know, when I said we wash and wax the fruit, when we wax the fruit, we actually put a layer of protection of wax on the fruit to increase the shelf life. Mm. So that's very important along with the cold chain cycle. Love that. Hey, one last comment. You know, quality obviously is important in, in every sector, every industry, you name it. But gosh, in produce, quality is like everything, right? Absolutely. So we actually look at quality at different levels. We look at it out in the field. You know, when we have our harvest crews, um, I mentioned clippers earlier. If you have a picker out there and it, it only takes one or two, you know, and if our quality control inspectors out in the field see that someone is just yanking oranges off and you lose that nice little green calyx at the top of the fruit, we've got an issue. That, that could be a potential issue for the shelf life of that piece of, for those pieces of fruit that are, have been compromised. At the packing house level, you know, we do an inspection once we receive the fruit from the field to make sure that that is not happening. If our inspector sees that at the receiving end, immediately they're going to target that, um, you know, contracting uh, labor contracting crew and let them know, okay, we've got an issue. You've got someone out there. They're, they're not clipping the fruit properly. You know, that's very important for the integrity and the shelf life of the fruit. And then at the grading stations, you know, my graders are looking, you know, with their hands and eyes and separating everything out. So that's another checkpoint of quality. And then even once we get past that and the fruits put into a box, you know, based on its size and grade, we still take an extra layer of quality control there where, you know, we're, we're hand packing. So your graders are grading and designating and ensuring quality. And then we take an extra step of having an in-house inspector who goes through each lot, each run, you know, just to spot checks, spot checks on quality. We want to make sure that, you know, everything's uniform. The packers are doing what they're supposed to do. 
our graders are doing what they're supposed to do. And all we want to do is con have continue or continuous quality throughout the pack. You know, if you show up on Tuesday and you look at that box of 72s fancy, it should look the exact same way on Thursday, even if it is a different grower, because we can control that, you know, within our operation. And then there's another layer of this as well, because you have other inspectors, outside inspectors that will come in. You know, usually these services are paid for by the customer or by us, depending on our agreement with our customer. And they also add another layer of quality and quality control. They'll go through, break some boxes down, go through them, report any issues they see, or, uh, you know, report positive quality to the customer or to us, you know, within, within our operation. So there's, there's a lot of labor <laughs> and hands and eyes checking this fruit, you know, before it hits the uh, retail storefront or the food, food service outlet. You know, Mike, it, it's also interesting as I've been part of the cold supply chain and, and working with warehouses across, I would say, the globe. One of the things that we've always tried to work with is, you know, really controlling that supply chain. Because if you ever noticed, if it's not controlled and there's problems throughout the supply chain, again, that's just gonna, you're gonna create more cost to this, you guys. It's gonna create this, you know, higher number at the consumer end, right? I mean, for you and me uh, together, we're gonna have all these higher costs uh, when we're, when we're uh, trying to go out to the grocery store, try to buy a $4.99 bag of oranges turns into a six, $7 bag of oranges. Um, but when you start the supply chain or that cold chain at the packing house, as Mike said, um, a lot of the things that work too are those temp controllers. You guys have probably heard of it and seen many companies out there, but every load that goes out is or has a temp recorder on it and is managed and monitored the entire way. And that also helps within the supply chain uh, to help us understand too what's happening from point A or the packing house to the consumer. And I know that a lot of times uh, that's talked about as a cost within the supply chain and where does that cost lie? But at the end of the day, this is all pertaining to figuring out one is what's happened to that piece of fruit traveling, right? First it was sweating coming from the groves. Now we're freezing it to death. I mean, think about it. I mean, this poor piece of fruit is being tortured and then it's going to be eaten. I mean, geez, I mean, long live the citrus king, right? I mean, this, this, these guys are going through a tremendous, tremendous upshake in their, uh, their lives, right? Or their little supply chain. So like I said, it, it's very interesting to keep this very uh, controlled. And then when it gets to the store, you notice how it's not in a controlled environment. It's out on a shelf, a normal 70 degree, you know, could be, you know, depending on where you are, it could be 80 degrees in some stores. Or if you're here in Florida, I swear every place I go into, they've got the AC at 42 degrees, like you're going to Antarctica. So it, depending on where you are, um, once it hits the stores, it, that's the complete difference of the supply chain. And you could talk about the controlled supply chain if, if it's uh, misconducted. You're talking about a piece of fruit that could last for 30 to 45 days after it's picked to five to seven days after it's picked. I mean, we've seen these things blow up like snowballs as we call them in the packing house because you could bring fruit in and if it's not handled or it's not treated the right way, you got snowballs. And now all of a sudden you've got all these little white puff balls of, of citrus that, have, that are starting to rot and decay very fast. And that could happen in the store. You've probably seen that you buy a bag of oranges. You might see one or two of those in there. Well, probably not handled right within the supply chain. Yeah, very important in the shelf life. You know, we, we, we just try and 
usher this fruit along as gently as possible. And it's a very, it's a very quick, but it's a very delicate process in that. And, you know, once we get, you know, product, finished product in the cooler, um, you know, we've got trucks that show up, they either make appointments or they come on a first come first serve basis. And, you know, we've got designated orders with different styles that, um, you know, we pack towards and we set those orders up accordingly. And then from my packing house, you know, once the cold chain has been, uh, you know, achieved to the right temperature, uh, we load the, the product onto trucks and they go to their designated destination. You know, and then we get to the next part of the supply chain where it's almost, or I say it is out of our hands. Once we ship to the wholesaler or as Michael does, right? Once the wholesaler and the distributor picks up, he could be in direct contact with these people to help distribute to grocery stores or go right to the grocery store. And that's always the crazy thing about every industry is there's always people in the middle to help get to that end unit. And that's where sometimes it, it can be difficult. But as you ship anywhere to the wholesalers and distributors, that's where the supply chain starts to get a little bit more creative. Uh, right, you've got a lot more ins and outs. And I know that part of the cold chain is one that is monitored very heavily. And I know we've got a lot of great wholesalers um, in our industry and distributors that work within uh, that cold treatment and cold nature. But that's another interesting topic too, you guys, is that once, as you see, we have it all the way from the grower leaving the packing house, it's like, what happens after that? What else does this piece of citrus go through to get to the shelf? I mean, Mike, what kind of thoughts, or even Greg or, or Scott, you know, what type of thoughts would you think? What's the next step like at the wholesaler to get it to the consumer or get it to the grocery store? So I'm interested um, to take us back just a slight step, Patrick. I'm interested in understanding the role of the wholesaler um, in conjunction with the di distributor. Is one in lieu of the other or does a wholesaler provide it to the distributor? Some are different. I mean, there, I believe yeah. So there's a middle, answer, yeah. middle in there. Hmm. There, there could be. I mean, a lot of times when you're considered a wholesaler in our world, and Mike, you can jump in at any time. A lot of it is you're the wholesaler to a, a certain person, or you're a bagger, a packer, and then a, a distributor could be classified as that you could be a DC directly for a certain retailer. Oh, right? there you go. Right, and you don't deal with the restaurants and the and the food service parts of the aspect. Okay, so the distributor could be within a chain, like Darden Restaurants or something like that. The wholesaler is that typical, typically a wholesale distributor, like you know, Pick'em, U.S. Foods, Performance Food Group, um, Burris, whomever that might be. Correct. I mean, yeah, those are guys that are within it. Yeah, that that are the wholesalers to food service companies too. So at this point in the supply chain, at the wholesaler point in the supply chain, we're starting to make that divergence from between food service to the restaurants or, or food wholesale or grocery to the grocery stores, right? Because those are different. Uh, those are different wholesalers. And um, so at that point, are the, uh, are the different packaging types, Michael, that you produce are, the, are some specifically for food service and restaurants and others specifically for food wholesale and grocery? We do, we do all different, um, we have all different types of customers. So we do have wholesalers, wholesalers slash distributors, 
We have freight forwarders who work on behalf of some of the retail or food service customers. And then we have direct retail. We do export. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways to kind of slice this pie up as far as, you know, the alignments go. Yeah. And like one thing that I try and do is I really try and educate myself on my customer on, you know, their destination on, you know, the, the supply chain, you know, once it leaves my facility, I'm not done. I still have to see this product through to where it makes the other side, you know, barring, you know, quality and everything else that goes into this. So you hope that, you know, the trucker does what they're supposed to do with the cold chain, you know, they make it in a timely manner to their destination. And we're not done at that point. And I, I, I feel it's really important to understand, you know, who you're dealing with. If you're shipping up to upstate New York, that's probably going to be a different type of uh, treatment versus me shipping down the road to Los Angeles. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm shipping to upstate New York, I know it's got, you know, a four to five day ride, you know, on a truck, plus probably a day or two, you know, to get unloaded at a DC or a wholesale cooler. You know, we're probably going to ship fruit that's, you know, targeted for that transit time and for that additional time. Where, you know, I, I hate to say we would ship fruit that's not quite as mature as what we would ship to Los Angeles where we ship full maturity, but you do have to factor that in. So it, sure. it, it is a puzzle to figure out within your customer base, how they're structured. You know, if, if, if it's a wholesaler and they bring a truckload of oranges in, you know, they're going to essentially set that up, you know, if they're on a terminal market and they're going to display your product and it's going to be a slower progression of distribution depending on, you know, the level of demand at that time versus shipping directly to a Walmart distribution center, you know, at a Walmart distribution center, the products tagged for these stores, four pallets are going here, two pallets are going there. And, you know, from the distribution center, it's going out to stores immediately. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you have to be really, you have to be really cognizant of that. So, um, Michael, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not sure you can answer, but I'll ask it anyway. So can you give us an idea of, of who your customers are? And I'll tell you why I'm curious because my company, one of my companies, Blue Ridge, we have a ton of food service and food wholesale customers and, and some grocery. And I'm just curious who gets golden star fruit. Um, it's an array. Like I said, you know, there's a mix and it's always funny because I mean, we are definitely a smaller, um, grower, packer, shipper. Um, I'm sure that Sunkiss is very synonymous with citrus and your average, you know, uh, average consumer, but you know, our product, and this is where there's a whole nother layer of kind of masking a little bit. We do private label for direct retail. So I don't know if you guys are up in the Northeast or along the Eastern seaboard, but like BJ's wholesale club. Oh yeah, of course. So you there's must, a, you must there's touch, a, um, Burris Logistics then I'm guessing because they oh, all the, uh, Burris all the time. Yep, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so we ship, I mean, we are a, we are a supplier for BJ's wholesale club, but what's funny is if you were excited and you said, Oh, I got a BJ's around the corner. I just talked to Mike. Let me go in there and I, you know what? I'm going to support this guy. I'm going to go buy a grab, I'm going to go grab a bag of golden star oranges. Well, you're not going to see golden star on the storefront you're going to see their private label on the storefront and they're my oranges, but they're put in, you know, their bag. Yeah. That's outstanding. So it, it's kind of funny. And you know, I get that a lot where it's like, Hey, I'm in, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma city. Where, where can I go get your oranges? Well, you can go to a Walmart, you know, we service this DC, 
but you know it's really hard to say go to store number 267 in you know Oklahoma right. City you're gonna find my oranges you know it's really hard to trace that but I get texts all the time of you know our bag you know if it's Golden Star then it identifies us directly you know and someone across the country a friend or family member or someone that just knows me will say hey oranges are looking great and they'll send me a picture you know of our of our oranges at a Walmart or a Kroger or an HEB that's fantastic so it, it is fun when that happens. I've got a, a good friend of mine who lives in Texas and he sees our product in HEB quite a bit. So, uh, you know, he, at least he tells me, he goes, Hey, I grab a bag every time I see it. So I want to make sure I, you know that I'm supporting, supporting you guys. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's really interesting because I think Burris is a great example of one of the potential avenues in the supply chain for your product because Burris is really a third party warehousing and trucking organization, we didn't even mention that exactly, but um, they effectively are the warehouse uh, layer of BJ's and other chains for certain products. They do a lot of, as you know, a lot of cold chain. And, and, mm -hmm. um, and so do they, do they actually pick up at your dock and then take it to the, their warehouses that, that service BJ's. And then of course they do deliver it on to BJ's, but I'm curious where they start Burris, a Burris, for example. I think they do operate as a direct, uh, direct loader at our facility. I'd have to pull okay. my shipping records and all that good stuff, but I know I've seen Burris on our shipping re registers. Um, I'm sure they're in here quite a bit being that they do a lot, you know, with that, with that club, uh, club store uh, in particular. Yeah. But um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, there's a lot of unknowns even on my end where, you know, you are shipping and you know, your product's landing, you know, at a Walmart, but I may not be necessarily writing this order directly to Walmart. It might be through a broker or maybe even two brokers in the middle. Wow. So that's where like you start talking about traceability and everything else. I can trace every carton, you know, if it lands at a store and they need to trace it back to who it came from when it was packed we have the capability within our, within our blockchain to ID everything back to pack date, run date, grower, you know, there, there's a lot of traceability there that we, we've really had to sophisticate over the years. So you are using blockchain. Wow. Yeah. So, well, like every, like every bag, for example, is going to go out with a bread clip that seals it on that bread clip. I actually print the Julian date of when it was packed and then I can run my records back where if for some reason someone asked me, hey, I got this bag of oranges, you know, could you trace it back? I could. So wow. it's pretty interesting where technology has taken us. And, you know, really with, uh, you know, that's a big, big conversation is the, uh, you know, traceability, the food safety and blockchain technology. You know, it continues to evolve and it continues to be, you know, a big piece of what we do versus 20 years ago, that wasn't, wasn't a big conversation to be had. Right. You, you might have a lock number 20 years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Patrick, that is fascinating. We talk a lot about blockchain on supply chain now. And we also hear a lot from our, our listeners about what is a practical or show me a practical usage of, of blockchain. And it's hard to be more uh, out front than oranges, right? And it, it's really impressive because you think of particularly citrus, 
to be such a physical endeavor, right? As you said, it's manually picked, manually loaded. There's a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot uh, of labor that goes into this product, but to, to compare that to all this technology that is now tracing this product, that is really, really impressive. This is a great example of, you know, <laughs> literally Scott from, from farm to table. Right. <laughs> You know, we deal with some blockchain companies that have approached us to want to go the extra mile, as we say, which is more, how do we put more of a UPC on it? So when it's scanned at the register, instead of the, just the Julian code on the bread clip. So, you know, Michael knows too, that there's these blockchain companies that can enhance it a little bit more. But as we talk about that, and you've learned about the supply chain a little bit more within Citrus, that all goes into the cost. And what's been hard about the, the produce and the supply chain and, and blockchain and technology merging together is that the costs are, are, been, are not spreading out between everybody right now. And that's kind of the one thing is why there's a lot of companies that still do different things like putting the lot numbers on it or just using a Julian code on the bread, uh, the bread clip, or even companies like I've interviewed here on the podcast like Demudo from Singapore that that's working on the UPC labels that completely tracks every aspect of the supply chain through the cold chain until it gets to the consumer. So I, I think that it's very interesting too, is that as technology comes more into the produce and supply chain industry, that blockchain is coming up more and more, but as you see, it's kind of happening just in its smaller version way. You know what I mean? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's starting to progress. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's an interesting thing. We talk about a lot of products that are naturally grown. Coffee is another one where a large burden is placed and, and a relatively low take, if you want to think of it that way, in terms of the dollars in the industry is placed on the grower. And it sounds like it's fairly similar here right the only one making money on produce might be really making a whole lot of money it might be the retailer and i'm not even sure that's the case hmm. yeah i agree and that's a big question mark there's a lot of costs that you know I, i'm not going to pick on any retailer at all but there's a lot of costs that are being driven and and are being a requirement in order to be a vendor for some of these retailers that you know they're they're not going to just say okay mike let's sign you up here's our protocol it's going to cost you an extra 60 cents per unit compared to just packing your typical pack schedule. And they're not going to say, okay, well, here's our price. It's $15. Well, you got 60 cents of a charge in there. So it's 1560. We're going to absorb that cost. I, I haven't ran into that yet. So we have to build these costs. in. you know, when we go to these retailers, you go into it knowing that I'm absorbing that cost. And yes, we are going to transfer that to the retailer or the consumer but we have to factor all this in. So each year that I, you know, kind of gear up for my winter season, that's kind of the start of my, my fiscal year or my season, so to speak, I have to make sure that I'm well-versed in all my costs because, you know, whether it's paper going up and my boxes cost more, you know, minimum wage moving up or any other cost involved, I've got to factor that in. So it's, it's very tricky. Yeah, no doubt. And, and produce is what drives people into grocery at least, right? Uh, you know, um, so it's, it's a must have for every retailer. 
hundred percent. I mean, even some of the ideas of advertising and marketing are, are, are different within grocery and just the regular other items or the deli or the, um, you know, the other departments, the bakery departments, but you know, we've seen in the last, I would say few years that when you look at uh, blockchain and sourcing is that you might notice that you're going to start seeing in the HEBs, they might say, you know, farm fresh and they might have a picture and a bio of the grower uh, right above it, whether it's cantaloupe, watermelon, citrus, whatever it might be. But even the retailers are starting to get that level to show to the consumers that, Hey, one, we buy local and we buy directly from the farm because as we've seen in the COVID-19 pandemic is that we're starting to support local businesses now more than ever. Even though I always say we always got to support local businesses, right guys? It's like that, that's the norm is we support local businesses, but that's also a big, big must within this produce world and transition to the retail world is that consumers want to know too, they're not buying a bunch of imported products as much as they don't mind buying you know, asparagus from Chile or lemons from other countries, you know, they do want to make sure that they're buying local, shopping local. So the more the retailers are advertising, promoting that they're as much farm direct as possible, or they're working with people, you know, like those two brokers that are working directly in queue with Mike, that's packing that private label, then we're able to be um, really to be able to control that supply chain a little bit more. And I think it's great to hear that actual like ride of the citrus. I mean, don't you think, I mean, did you think we were going to go through um, the, the citrus getting the suntan right under the tarp getting sweated <laughs> out all the way through him freezing to, you know, going to the retail store. I mean, I, I think it's a great story of how citrus travels through the supply chain. Agree. This was a different, less yeah. controversial tarp act and <laughs> it was fascinating for sure. <laughs> wow! I didn't, yeah, I had totally forgotten about the tarp. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I do want to thank Scott Luden and Greg White for coming on the Produce Energy Podcast today and sharing their knowledge within supply chain and bringing the aspect of supply chain now to the podcast. So I thank both of you for joining in and really being inspiring to the industry and chatting with myself and Michael. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, it's been an education for us too. I really appreciate your time and inviting us to do this because, you know, as I said, I've, I've dealt with the supply chain, the cold chain supply chain and the companies that play in it, but I've learned a lot here. So it's great to get this perspective and, and I really appreciate, appreciate the time. Agreed. And, you know, one of my favorite parts of this conversation is you can just hear the passion both from Mike and from Patrick, just come right through the headset, right, right into your ears. And, and, and not just passion, but expertise. And, and it's really fascinating. One of my favorite parts about global supply chain is each different item, uh, as you, as you, you know, go back upstream uh, and, and dive into its supply chain, there's always all these different nuances uh, and great people, hardworking people that, that uh, take care of all of us and, and to now enjoy just as Greg, as you were saying, all the produce basically year round. I mean, that's from great, incredible people like Matt, Mike and Patrick. And, and uh, for that, we all, we all have a debt of gratitude. So thanks so much for uh, sh uh, including us here today. 
Yeah, you're welcome. And Michael, we want to thank you for coming on and giving us your subject matter expertise on citrus and the supply chain industry. Because again, too, without you, we would not have those best tasting pieces of citrus, as I say. And I've tried a lot of citrus. I mean, even on the YouTube channel, I tried over 14 varieties. And hands down, Mike will tell you every time, he's like, how is the navel? How is the, how is the cara cara? So Mike, I always appreciate hearing from you. And thank you so much for joining the show today and bringing us your wealth of knowledge. Thank you guys. I really appreciate uh, the exposure and, you know, for me to share my little two cents and, you know, hopefully if, if anyone thinks a little further, you know, we're not the only item. There's a lot of people that are involved in this supply chain that I'm fortunate to be, you know, a representative of. And, you know, I, I cannot steal the credit whatsoever. You know, there's a lot of great people that, you know, just allow me to show up and, and fill this job and this responsibility that I have. But, you know, hats off to all the uh, harvesting crews out there, all my employees, you know, anyone who's in produce outside of citrus, whatever, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and growers involved that, uh, you know, uh, we're happy to do the job. It doesn't always feel the greatest, but uh, we show up every day and try and do our best to make sure we keep the, this, uh, you know, I would say country, like keep this globe globe spinning and keep people fed. You've been listening to the Produce Industry Podcast with Patrick Kelly. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Produce Industry Podcast. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon.